Good afternoon. Welcome to the session. Thank you for attending the session today. I'm Aditya Kudumala. I'm a partner principal in our life sciences practice. I lead our life sciences innovation, AI, blockchain, emerging tech. And today, I have the honor of co-presenting with the Pfizer team, who are leaders in their own rights in terms of building some new, very innovative solutions, technologies, the capabilities. I want to introduce Vitali Dobin, who leads uh, leader within the Pfizer Health and Impact Group. We have Josh Rageman, who is a leader within Pfizer's analytics, plus also AICOE. Along with him is Abe Thomas, who is also a leader within the Pfizer analytics and AICOE. So today, we're going to be talking about patient centricity. We're talking about real-world data, evidence, cognitive insights. All of these are very important, re relevant topics. Uh, I'm pretty sure some of you are in this room to not only you guys are doing it today, but also want to hear more of what's happening in the industry itself. And the use and the importance of these capabilities is evolving, and it continues to evolve as we speak. In addition to that, we are also seeing a whole proliferation of data. We are seeing uh, advancements in the uh, technologies or analytics capabilities, and also the regulators are more and more in tune with these capabilities and leveraging them for their use uh, in their decision-making process. And when we talk about uh, the real-world evidence and data, today we're going to do two things. One, we'll, we'll share with you some of the snippets from our survey, Deloitte Annual Real-World Evidence Survey. I know it's, it's a very meaty topic. There's a lot to cover, but in 60 minutes, we'll do our best job of condensing it. Hopefully, we'll leave some time for Q&A. We'll, we'll share some of the snippets. Second, we'll showcase the, the journey that Pfizer has embarked on. It's a truly amazing story. I've been working with these folks for a number of years. I'm, I'm, I'm truly amazed by the amount of work these guys have put into it, the accomplishments and all, and hope you too appreciate the, uh, the progress and the future that they're laying the groundwork for. So when we talk about real-world evidence, yeah, this clicker has a problem. They told me that, so I'm going to try again. So when we talk about the real-world evidence data, the, the context here is anything healthcare data that is generated outside of the random clinical trials. So anything, data can be electronic medical records, genomic data sets, patient-generated uh, data sets, whether it's from sensors or things like that. That's the context of it. The second is evidence is nothing but the insights that are generated from these data, and you leverage that insights for a number of applications are used. We'll talk about it a lot in the, uh, in the session today, but it's more to do with whether you're demonstrating the value of your product and or you are uh, meeting the regulatory requirements and so on and so forth, right? And more and more, we're seeing the industry as a whole use, increasingly using this data and the insights from it for their use as such. But we have a lot more questions to ask. Are, they, are we making the right investments? Are we making the uh, choices from a technology perspective? Are we having the right governance model, technology, talent? All those questions are big questions that everybody's asking. And hopefully, we'll touch upon some of them through the story that we'll share later today. But again, open for some discussions later on as we go through the, uh, the presentation as such. Okay. So one of the key, we want to share about three or four I would say snippets from our survey. Uh, one was the, when we did the survey in 2017, that was the first Deloitte annual RWE survey. And compared to what we did today, this year, 2018, as you can see, there were about twice as many respondents highlighting the importance at the executive level for the use of this data and insights for the use within the company itself. And, that, and, and we see the trend increasing from now to 2020. So we, we are starting to, uh, not only the company is embracing it, but it is becoming the fabric of their organization as such. Out of the respondents that we uh, talked to, some of the other insights that they highlighted, over 90% of them are already not only building these capabilities, but also in a various degrees of maturity of leveraging these capabilities for their use. Right? 
And if we can break it down even further, where some of the capabilities are very mature, but they're mature for a certain functions that they have optimized it, but everybody is on a journey to create these capabilities that can be applied across the entire product lifecycle. That's the, the goal that they have, the vision that they have, all of these organizations. And hopefully, when we do the survey next year or the two years from now, we will see the pie chart changing quite drastically from 45% to more in terms of how they would leverage it across the product lifecycle itself. And the other lens that we want to show it to you is like, what are the, as I said earlier, how are we leveraging this for today and then future? Right now, as you see the focus of leveraging these insights, what we, when we did the survey, what the, the key topics that came out was, how, is the, how are the treatments performing for certain populations? How are we monitoring patient safety? How are we looking at disease burden and all those? Those topics will be relevant today and also tomorrow, but more and more as we've been talking to uh, the leaders within these organizations, the focus would also shift to, can I leverage these insights to do a better design of better clinical trials, do clinical trial optimization, do value-based contracts, and also, can we leverage this data sets to expand on the label, the usage of the product, and also for my regulatory submissions. So we're seeing more and more adoption of these uh, data and insights for, the, uh, for different functions within the organization as such. So, and last data point we want to share before I bring the Pfizer team on board is, more than 70% of these respondents highlighted that they are building these capabilities in-house. Again, as I said earlier, various degrees of maturity, but I'm really excited to share the capabilities that Pfizer has built, and it's been a long journey since 2012, Josh, I believe, right? 2012, that they've been building this out, and it's a phenomenal story, and I hope you also will enjoy this in the next few minutes. So I'll call upon Josh Raisman, who will come and speak about the journey that they embarked since 2012. Abe will talk about how they made it happen, and then Vitali will talk about how, what the business impact that they're having today and also future. Great. Thank you. All right. See if I can do this. You had to click it twice. Twice. Yeah. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Josh Raisman. Uh, as Aditya said, I work for Pfizer. I lead a technology organization focused on trying to figure out how we can leverage data, analytics, and increasingly AI to drive our vision of creating a healthier world. We're really happy to be able to share our story with you today. Um, we hope that uh, we hope you'll find it interesting. Um, we found it very exciting, and um, yeah, we're just happy to happy to be here. I have to remind you before we begin that uh, this is neither an endorsement of a specific technology or, or any direction. Um, and the things that you'll hear from us are views and opinions that may or may not align with Pfizer Inc. at any given time. Um, now that we've got that out of the way. Uh, so where do we begin to tell this story? Uh, I begin, so I, and I think it, you know, these are new slides. We're going to test drive them. You'll let me know afterwards how they, how they work. I think the best way to begin this story is to talk a little bit about the changing perspectives, our changing perspectives on healthcare data. So when I started with Pfizer in 2006, we were largely, I would, I would argue, focused on internal events, events that we generated, whether it was experiments on the benchtop or clinical trials that we ran. Everything was very inwardly focused. Um, over time, and some of this was driven by technology innovation, some policy like the High Tech Act here in, in the US, we began to shift or widen our lens and began to look much more broadly at the world around us, such that years ago, we were lucky if we had 100, maybe 1,000 patients that we could look at longitudinally and try to understand things like disease progression or treatment patterns. Um, now we can choose across hundreds of millions of patient lives and all de-identified, of course, and looking, at, looking and finding patterns. Um, the, the data itself has changed. So we, we moved from this sort of traditional, very structured output um, to incorporating all sorts of new data streams, whether it was streams from devices, I'm still an old school watch guy, I don't know why I'm pointing to my actigraphy device. Um, whether it was devices, whether it was images, uh, whether it was healthcare events coming out of electronic medical records, um, these, were, these were all relatively new to us. And, and of course, we had things like uh, publications and transcriptions of our interactions with patients and providers. So we have all of these new elements that we can look at to make decisions. And the decisions themselves have changed. Um, so in years past, we, we supported very direct, um, directive kind of analyses. Show me this, show me that. But increasingly, the question is more, what does the data say? 
okay, that, that, that's, that's, that's really different. Um, and if you think about it in the commercial context, how, how many of you are, are, have a healthcare background? Just a show of hands. Okay, all right, so there, there's a, it's a mixed crowd. All right, so those of you who've worked in, uh, in healthcare and worked for a big pharma in the past, uh, no surprise, we, we invested a lot of money and a lot of time to understand our brand performance. There were two metrics that we looked at. John Wallman here in the front row could tell us, could give us a dissertation about them. It's uh, new NRXs and TRXs. How many new scripts were written for patients? What's your overall market share? Interesting stuff, important stuff. Um, but what, what I would argue has happened over the last five years is we've been caught in this tremendous updraft of expectation of the data. So not only do we have all sorts of new streams of information, but the expectation is that we're going to do something with it. And what does that look like? Um, at, at first glance, it's simply understanding patient treatment patterns. For some, for some conditions, some patients will go to the clinic six, seven times before they're diagnosed. Other patients will go one or two times and, and come back, come away with the same diagnosis. Why does that happen? Um, how does that correlate to outcomes? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? These are, these are questions that we're expected to be able to answer now. Um, going further, we want to understand the patient's behavior themselves and how that might influence outcomes. Who, you know, what are, who are the patients who are really going to adhere to a medication? Who aren't? Um, and you know, also disease progression. We've begun to understand and get very good um, at uh, expecting that we'll understand sub patient subpopulations, and that each you know with this whole idea of n of one. Well, you know, we we try to get there in our understanding of disease. Um, but the the real change, I would argue, and and what drove us to this journey to the cloud was the idea that we wanted to leave the dashboard. Um, behind. We wanted to get to a point where we could bring insights in vivo. So how can we in real time influence positive patient outcomes with all of this information? And that, that's a completely different shift um, from, from what we had done in the past. And so we started, we, we had fits and starts with this. Our move to the cloud really coincided with 2016. So uh, anybody familiar with that banner? Um, so but it was about the same time that we were starting on this journey, I had the opportunity to go to Tokyo. And if you've ever go to Tokyo, there's a, a district called Shinjuku where there's a lot of corporation, corporate buildings and government buildings. And there were these huge banners to get people motivated to think about what Tokyo 2020 needed to look like in order to support their winning bid uh, for the summer games. They had just won. And so it, it got me thinking, what are some of the macro factors that we were going to have to take into account as we, as we made this journey? And what if any of them had anything to do with the cloud? So we had our own Pfizer 2020. Right? That's about as close as I can get to, to Olympic rings. Um, and you know, there were obvious macro factors that we had to make adjustments for, right? We had technology innovation, this idea that we could buy technology by the pound or by the minute, um, the idea that we were going to see and we're now seeing digital assistance pop up in all sorts of aspects in our lives. Just at, at Pfizer alone, we'll have half a dozen digital assistants focused on patients and HC healthcare providers, um, these little chat bots and the like. And we knew that that was coming. Um, but we also saw this idea of, of external collaboration. So how many of you remember the cancer moonshot, right? This was a great, this was a great endeavor where we were bringing stakeholders or stakeholders were being brought together that previously didn't have much to do with one another. Providers and payers and, uh, and pharma, all forming these sort of syndicates around data, collecting it, generating it, collecting it, enriching it, and getting much better at mining it for better outcomes. And we saw that that was something that was, was only going to continue. And we knew what was happening here in the US, or perhaps Japan and a few markets in uh, the European Union, was going to continue to grow. So we had to grapple with all of that and this data the proliferation. And so what, what do we do? Well, the answer was, was kind of obvious, right? I mean, it's obvious now, two years ago, perhaps not so obvious. You could have had a few dissenters saying, ah, oh, the cloud, it's a fad. Uh, you know, I, actually, I heard somebody still describe it as a fad. Clearly, it's not a fad, right? And so we, we said, well, what could we do? Um, how can we use all of these technologies to create a more data-centric or patient-centric data platform? And so we started a project called Athena. And Athena was all about taking a 100% cloud-based approach 
to how we pull together disparate sources of information um, to guide our decision making at any given time and doing it in such a way that we could extend. So if there was a new bit of data that we hadn't seen before, fine, great. We, we, can, we can figure out how to store it. We can figure out how to mine it. If there's a new algorithm that we want to take advantage of or a, a new framework, well, great. We, you know, we knew that we wanted to be in the cloud to do that and perhaps two or, or, or three clouds. And so today, we've got um, a 600 billion healthcare event um, repository. Um, that doesn't include the tens of millions of patient interaction and, and provider interactions that we transcribe, and then we can use various NLP techniques to mine. Um, all of this is in a, an ecosystem that we can bring uh, external collaborators in and out of. We can do all sorts of n novel uh, data sharing that we, we simply weren't able to do. And we're able to, more importantly, power decisions that matter, that help us prioritize where we make investments in our drug portfolio, all the way through to making, uh, making value propositions clear to, um, to patients and providers and stakeholders. This is what our drugs do for, or this is what our medications do for these, these types of patients, to powering how we engage with those patients, to, making, to bringing it all the way home to say, well, okay, it's not, it's not enough just to have a great product. It's got to be a great product that's actually benefiting the patient. And, and all of that is being driven, or a lot of that is being driven today from this platform. And we think um, it, it, we're really well positioned, certainly better than we've ever been before um, to, for future demand. So that's sort of conceptually um, what we've done and that this is sort of the conceptual part of the journey. What I'm gonna do now is hand it over to Abe Thomas who's gonna talk in more detail about sort of what we did and how we did it. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Hi folks, my name is Abe Thomas. And Josh, thank you for that. So let's get into what we did and how we did it. All right. So in 2017, Pfizer was facing an urgency, a major issue, right? We were expecting a massive influx of patient healthcare events, uh, similar to what Aditi was talking about. But before I and describe exactly what the issue was, let's go back in time to 2014. All right. So in 2014, when we kind of start on this journey, we were processing around 40 billion healthcare events on an annual basis. This was our annual throughput. That time, it was a fairly sizable amount of data. And over time, of course, I gotta move over here, I guess. All right, there we go. Over time, this volume uh, increased. And by the time we got to 2017, we had a substantial increase in healthcare events. We were processing around a 10x factor over where we started. And in 2017, we're around 90% capacity in our platforms. So that includes our database platforms, our SFTP servers, our NAS, and so on. So we had to make a decision. And we, we kind of saw this coming in 2016. We realized that at the growth rate of around 200 billion records a year, which is what we're seeing, we're going to be maxed out fairly soon. So in 2017, we thought, OK, if we get another 200 billion records or so, we're not going to have any processing power to actually ingest it or even analyze it, uh, or, or even load it. Uh, so in 2016, as Josh alluded to, we made the conscious decision to actually move to the cloud. And in late 2017, we did make the move. We started uh, initializing our cloud-based infrastructure. Now, you can call us good or call us lucky, because what happened next is, in 2018, by Q3, we hit 1.7 trillion healthcare events that we were ingesting in. Uh, this includes EMR data, claims data, newly licensed data, international data. Uh, it was a massive influx of healthcare events that we were processing monthly, quarterly, what have you. By the end of this year, we are on track, and I think we already hit this mark, to process 2 trillion healthcare events. Now, this supports the 600 billion because this is throughput, uh, and we had to churn through this much data in order to get that 600 billion active healthcare events. Uh, so fairly significant. Had we not moved uh, to the cloud, we would have had an issue. So if you ask me, we were good in the sense we made the right decision. We were lucky in that our timing was almost perfect. Uh, we moved to the cloud late 2017. First quarter 2018, um, we got hit with these new, uh, these new data sets. So on-prem or in the cloud, right? That was a decision that we were facing. 
and for those of you who have been through a data center migration, data center expansion, you know how painful it is, right? You're on calls uh, about server migrations, about trucks hitting the docks, about cables being crossed, and so on and so forth. And just from a cost perspective, right, we were looking at around a 3x factor if we decided to invest heavily in our infrastructure from a database platform perspective, NAS, SFTP, analytics, Python, R, you name it, uh, it was fairly significant. Moving to the cloud, however, gave us a flexibility to expand on demand, right, to spin up instances as needed uh, at a much lower cost factor. So the cost factor differential itself is fairly significant, uh, let alone the capabilities of moving to the cloud uh, provided for us. So that was a fairly easy decision uh, for us to make. All right, let's go back to 2014 and our architecture back then. A very simple diagram. In 2014, this was, this was great, right? Very simple but great. We had an SFTP server where vendors could upload their data to. We had a NAS, right? We had ETL. We had, at that point in time, the greatest MPP parallel system that I could think of, right? Uh, users were using server-based analytic products and client-based tools. And it was great in 2014 because in 2011, our vendors were shipping us hard drives, right? 2011 and 2012. They would ship us hard drives via FedEx. We'd have to track it, manually mount it on a Unix server, copy the files over to file server. We had SaaS users querying these files. I mean, the ingestion process alone took multiple weeks. That came down to multiple days in 2014. So this was great in 2014. 2016, as Josh mentioned, we started implementing uh, a smaller ecosystem in the cloud. Uh, we were expanding our data science usage, so we had a uh, deep learning uh, environment out there, uh, analytics clusters and so on. It was connected, uh, but not, um, not cohabited, if you know what I mean. We would take data as needed, move it to the cloud, do our analysis and so on. But in 2017, what was great in 2014, was reaching end of life, it was almost not that great anymore. So in 2018, fast forward 12 to 18 months, we are now completely 100% in the cloud. Our SFTP servers are gone, and along with that, um, I remember back then, we had to arrange with our vendors as to when they can land their data, because all our vendors could not upload the data at the same time. That is gone, now we're using S3 buckets, of course. So our SFTP servers are gone, our NAS servers are gone, Today, I don't really care about how much data you're uploading. I don't really care when you upload the data, right? Uh, the data gets uploaded to S3. From there, we ingest it into an Amazon Redshift cluster. That data ingestion process has become very simple. It, we used to do a lot of ETL, emphasis on the T. Today is primarily EL. It's extract and load. There's very little transformation that goes on, uh, partly because the cluster we have is fairly powerful enough so we don't have to do a lot of transformation to the data sets. Above and beyond that, you'll notice that uh, our deep learning, our analytics cluster, we have microservices and API search and Elastic, that's all integrated really well in a cohesive environment. So all of our users, whether they're data scientists, engineers, statisticians, they're all in this ecosystem working on a common set of data right, without having to worry about spinning out different servers on their own or using other tools. Um, and of course, security is paramount for Pfizer, so uh, it's all in the VPC, it's in the cloud, it's all uh, encrypted data and so on. So this is all great, so let's talk about some results. So we've been in the cloud for about nine, 10, well, 11 months now, actually, and we noticed some very significant results that are very positive and very exciting, actually. So I'll talk about from an operational and from a technical perspective. Oops, work. There we go. All right. So year, year over year, from 2017 to 2018, we've had a net increase of 23% in the volume of SQL queries. So these are all ad hoc queries. There are no canned queries running in this ecosystem. We cannot tune for a canned report. These are queries being run in support of a study. Uh, these are being executed by Python or R, uh, SAS, raw SQL, Tableau dashboards, what have you. They're all very ad hoc. We have to, we have to support a 23% increase in our queries. Now, what's interesting is we've had more users come on this platform since we went to the cloud. 
And it's not because Pfizer has gone out and hired a whole lot more statisticians. It is because business groups who used to work in silos in the past are now coming out of their shadows and actually moving their analytics to this ecosystem. And many of them are bringing along their real-world data assets as well. So we're getting more users, more data, uh, folks coming together. Uh, and that's uh, the new user base we have. Query performance, if I can get this to work, uh, is paramount. We have a soft SLA of 90% of all queries, ad hoc or whatnot, need to execute in under 30 seconds. Uh, end of Q3, we hit 97% of all the queries are hitting our marks, our redshift cluster, and completing in under 30 seconds. And the key thing there is that is without having to transform the data. Uh, these queries, in the past, we've had to denormalize our tables, right, because the queries just wouldn't perform. Now it's just ENL. We're loading the data as is. Our users are being trained, best practices, how to write appropriate queries, and so on. Uh, but the performance is great. And of course, this is going against a 416% increase in data volumes, right? This is a, a very large cluster, a lot of healthcare data, uh, and is supporting this increased usage as well. Time to load. This was a really key metric for us. Back in 2012, it would take two weeks to load a certain set of data. In 2016, uh, 2014, 2016, that came down to 39 hours, roughly. That same data set can now be loaded in hours in the new cluster. Uh, it's very quick, it's very simple, and this is the time from landing in our S3 bucket to making it live in the data mart. Uh, it's a 70 percent reduction, which means from an operational perspective, our operational footprint from a manpower is, ab is exactly the same as it was four years ago. Despite this increase in volume, despite the increase in usage and the, the technology stack, uh, it is exact same foot, uh, footprint. And lastly, let me get this to work, uh, obviously the cost to process and to store and have a healthcare event available for analytics has come down as well. And of course, cost is always important. And I fully expect this number to actually come down. This being our first year, we've optimized to the best we can. Uh, our journey has just begun. I'm fairly certain that number will come down. I'm fairly certain that our time to load will come down as well as we begin to work with our vendors uh, closer uh, to get these, uh, these numbers to where they are. But the key is behind each one of these metrics is a query, is a study being done to uh, further a patient's lives and patient health. And that's what's key here, right? These metrics are all cool. The technology is cool. But unless there's a significant business impact, unless uh, we're moving towards Pfizer's goal of a healthier world, it does not make a whole lot of sense. So I'm going to pass it on to Vitaly, who will share some of our success stories. Um, hi, I'm Vitaly Dobin, I'm part of the team that is the business owner of the environment and uh, part of the reason that uh, Josh and Abe had many sleepless nights over the past five years or so. Um, so um, uh, I have only one slide. Um, unfortunately, a few other slides legal did not approve. Uh, have, may have something to do with the fact that I sent them too late, but uh, hopefully I can talk through it. Um, so um, before... I go to this slide, uh, I think I'll start uh, with where, where we started. So as I did mentioned, real-world data is uh, getting a lot of attention. Uh, Originally around, uh, you know, before it started getting all this attention, real-world data was primarily used for health economic and outcome research. And for those that are outside of pharma, this is uh, this a type of research that's taking place right before products go, uh, go uh, uh, into commercialization, so right before approval. And they're primarily used uh, for discussions with the payers uh, to ensure um, to secure reimbursement. And uh, those type of studies and analysis they usually take a year or even more than a year. Uh, so usually the process would be uh, a business team would meet. They would uh, talk about uh, what kind of analysis, what kind of studies we want to run. Um, we would uh, identify a few data sources. We would run some feasibility accounts. Uh, we would uh, go into uh, contracting and uh, legal discussions, maybe six months later, we would get the data set in-house. 
where we have our clinical stats team uh, build patient cohorts, then our stats team would run analysis, so a year later uh, we would get the analysis. Um, so around 2013, when Pfizer decided to create uh, an internal capability around real-world data and real-world evidence, that's when our team was created. And that's so, uh, when we launched the first uh, data environment. And that, uh, so we built a number of data partnerships with external data vendors, and uh, we built an on-premise environment that uh, Josh and Abe mentioned earlier. And that allowed us to uh, eliminate all, all of the delays around contracting and legal. But uh, we still had, uh, in the issue was still, um, like we were able to build better analysis because we could uh, validate some of our assumptions, run some of the visibility counts as we were working on designing the analysis. But then uh, we still would have to spend three months or so building patient cohorts, running the analysis. And by the way, if we would have a question that's slightly different than what we originally designed, then we would have to go back and rerun all of those, um, all of those analysis. So plus this approach is not very scalable. So the more uh, questions we want to answer, the more uh, you know, clinical statisticians and data scientists we would need to, uh, to hire. Uh, so really the only way, not only the one of the ways we wanted to address this problem is by building an analytics environment that would sit on top of the data environment. And uh, that's really when we saw a big uptake in the utilization of uh, our data environment. And um, so by having this analytics environment, we were able to build self-service analytic tools uh, that would allow our uh, customers across the board, across Pfizer, to be self-sufficient. So our big uh, goal for our team was to enable reliable data to be used across the entire product lifecycle from early research uh, to development, commercialization, and through uh, all the way to post-marketing safety surveillance. And again, by uh, building these analytic tools, we were able to, uh, to achieve this. And they'll, uh, for example, on the research side, we build analytic tools, um, uh, self-services and analytic tools that allow um, to identify mathematical needs. And also, uh, there are many, many times questions around pa uh, patient characteristics. So uh, uh, we oftentimes want to focus on patients at uh, the highest risk or patients uh, that consume the uh, uh, that are highest cost patients. Um, and uh, again, we don't need to go through a lot of uh, this back and forth with our clinical stats teams or our stats teams because we have the tools that uh, researchers can use on their own to answer their questions and they can do that in an iterative way so they don't have to kind of spend time uh, uh, putting really carefully designing all the studies uh, prior to just to, to uh, ask a simple question. On the uh, clinical trial side and development side, we're helping uh, clinical trial teams to design better uh, clinical trials by uh, doing what-if analysis, looking, designing better in, uh, inclusion-exclusion criteria, so looking at what kind of impact on the potential study population various inclusion-exclusion uh, inclusion, criteria might have uh, prior to uh, kind of finalizing the design of the studies. On the commercial side, uh, Again, real-world data is very useful to assess uh, uh, the market size, uh, which helps with forecast, with market, uh, with business development, and also very, uh, it's very useful to understand treatment patterns, uh, uh, how patients are taking medicine, how long they're staying in treatment, what, uh, what, medicine, what medicine they're switching to from the initial medicine, and so forth. And then on the safety surveillance side, we enable the safety team to build uh, standard cohorts, as we call them, that are being continuously monitored to make sure that uh, continuously monitored for safety events. Um, so again, I think over time, what we're seeing is uh, the initial years, most of the use our uh, data environment was, was getting it through direct users. So users that were very comfortable with writing SAS code, SQL code. But over the past couple of years, as we introduced these analytic tools, we're seeing a big shift in uh, users using uh, uh, users coming through these analytic tools. And that's exactly the type of shift that we want to see because it enables to uh, enable us to do our analytics at scale, whereas we don't need to, to, to hire uh, 100 statisticians just because we have uh, 100 more uh, business users asking questions of the data platform. 
So I'll stop with that and I'll invite any questions. Thanks, Vital. Sure. So uh, while folks are lining up for the questions, uh, Josh, I'm going to start off with you on a question. I thought we were supposed to move our chairs. Sorry. No, I, I can't be the only one who's moved my chairs. Right, right. OK, fire away. All right. So we're going to do a couple of things. So we have about 20-odd minutes uh, right here. So we had a few questions that, based on the journey that we've been together, I want to dwell a little bit deeper in some of the, uh, the context behind the journey that we've been in. But apart from that, please, if you have any questions, I can't see the mic. The, there should be a mic around where you can ask questions so we can also have an interactive dialogue if you have anything uh, that you want to dwell further into it. So Josh, it's been an amazing journey. 2012, we've been there since day one with you guys throughout the, and we've gone through the ups and downs. But the truly amazing things, I know you dealt some of it as we went through the presentation, but what were the key learnings and challenges or opportunities that suddenly everybody, it was a mind shift change. At least I can see from 2012 to 2018, I think you alluded to, there's a sea change of mindset that, that's been, that we, you've been able to accomplish, but that took a lot of effort within the enterprise. So do you want to share something, both from a mindset perspective, adoption perspective, any other key learnings that this team can, or this group can take away with? Sure. I, I, can, uh, I, can, I can start and I'll ask you guys to, to chip in. So first off, we're, at AWS reInvent, we are partnering with Deloitte on a presentation. So I first have to say partnerships were key, right? You've got to have the right, the right people advising you, the right expertise. Um, you know, you only have so many of the world's smartest people in the room at any given time. So you, you, have, to look, you have to look externally as well. Um, I think the, you know, one, of the, one of the keys is we were reflecting earlier, and we, I attribute the, the line to Henry Ford, but apparently there's some discussion about whether Henry Ford ever said what I believe he said, and clearly I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, what we didn't do um, specifically is set out to build a faster horse, right? So the whole the Henry Ford line, but you know, I, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, I, they would have said a faster horse instead of a car. Um, so what we we tried to to take it upon ourselves to say, okay, what do, where do we see this going, um, and and where do we see the opportunities? And as part of that, we didn't try to win over the world. This story is a fantastic one on many levels. For those who cared about the dollars and cents, we have a great story. We, we literally bent that cost curve that Abe showed you to a degree that I didn't think was possible. Um, for those who wanted to be innovative, so we've got an oncology business unit and they are, it's a, it's a great space. We've got great products, we believe, and we, we believe we can do great things on behalf of patients. Um, they are eager to try new things. So for them, the idea that they could, you know, experiment with GPU-based, um, you know, data science, they were all in. Um, on the other hand, we, we you know, and, and so they, they, they got excited and that, it, that excitement kind of cascaded. At the same time, we made sure for those folks who, who were on the, the more clinical development side, where it wasn't innovation that was important to them, it was certainty. They wanted to run their analyses and they wanted those analyses to, to execute flawlessly within the time that they had allowed. All we did was make it a little bit faster, but it was a win. Um, so, so it was a combination of you know, thinking big, starting small, targeting our value proposition, remembering that you know, I, uh, this, this is the part that's, that's my opinion. We're all motivated by self-interest, right? So there had to be something in it for the constituents, and we tried to keep that in mind as we put together the story and told the story uh, internally. Anything else come to mind, you guys? Yeah, from a business learning, or from a learnings perspective, uh, from the technology bend, I think the one thing that uh, technologists do that is probably not so great is we get excited about technology for, te for technology's sake, right? You know, oh, this is a cool new machine learning model, uh, it's GPU. You can't evangelize to the business uh, the latest greatest technology. Their eyes are gonna close. What you have to do is kind of build that bridge, understand where they wanna go, Right, and then bring up the technology that will help them get there. Um, and I think for, for us, that was, that was really crucial and that uh, Josh Benson Oncology Group, I mean, they were, for us, that bridge because they, they knew where they wanted to go. They were willing to take this leap of faith with us and they were not scared of technology. So having that group be one of our co-evangelists and saying, hey, this is where we're gonna go, they're doing it and this is what they're seeing, 
uh, was a big uh, was a big lesson for us. I think another thing from a technology perspective, just from implementation, is it's not going to go as expected, right? Moving to the cloud, it sounds cool. Uh, it's, it is work. It is hard work, and you will face the unexpected. You can plan the plan and plan the plan. The plan's a plan, but you got to be ready to scrap that plan at a moment's notice. We did that a couple of times as we learned new things that just didn't work out, uh, whether it's, oops, we used the wrong encryption key, back all the data out, put it back in. Oops, we forgot to test SSL in a couple of platforms, run all our test cases again. Uh, whatever it might be, there are going to be learnings uh, that you'll have to go through, and you have to be willing and able and to be agile, really, and to hold, handhold the business as they make that journey uh, with you. So uh, those are two learnings from... I think I'll add one that's, uh, I think everybody knows, build it and they will not come. So that's exactly what happened, I think, with us initially, at least. So we thought we were going to launch this data, a platform and this analytic tools, and everyone is just going to jump up and down, and you know there'll be a huge line for people waiting to sign up to use these tools, and it didn't happen. And really, only you know through hard work, through re repetition, and doing community practices, or each of the kind of businesses or people across different business lines, um, different functional lines as well, presenting their own use cases. So not us talking about their use cases, having them present their own use cases. I think that uh, carries much more uh, power. And I guess one more I'll mention is uh, kind of the cultural shock in a way. Yeah, I, I still remember when I first joined the team and I was talking to somebody in stats and uh, it was a pretty high person and she said I would never put my signature in the, under any analysis that took less than three months, right? And uh, it just doesn't work this way in the real life, but that's kind of the mindset we had to we had to wrestle with at the beginning. So I think just the big mind shift from like five years ago to now is just uh, just amazing. That's great. And, and just to click on one more topic, how was the whole, it's a complex environment, Pfizer as such, but can you double click on the talent and the governance and how you guys overcame that? I know you talked about silos being brought down and all, but I think that also had a very big net net impact within the enterprise itself. And even the new strategy that's been laid out looks like forward-looking based on all the things that you guys have been doing. Any comments on how, from a governance perspective and also from a talent perspective, you guys were able to groom this up over the, co over the course of uh, five, six years? So, um, so talent is always tough. Unfortunately, uh, pharma is not the first place people, you know, data scientists think about. Uh, when they think about looking for a new job. So uh, it, it, it is tough, so you had to kind of for some of the uh, statisticians, so uh, make them comfortable using other tools than SaaS. Right. So that's uh, one thing. Another thing, still bring people, younger people from colleges fresh out of school that uh, have higher aspirations and they like, like healthcare, like making a difference. Uh, you know, like doing more than just optimizing, uh, yeah, I know, uh, junk email, you know, things of that nature. So uh, bringing those kind of people, but then, you know, it comes with a, with a, uh, with a pain of uh, teaching them about the healthcare data, which uh, it might take a little bit of time uh, uh, to get used to. Um, it just, that thing just takes time. I think the, the governance play is, is an interesting question, right? So um, we, uh, everybody wants a data lake now. I mean, actually, that was last year. I don't know what everybody's going to want for 2019, but certainly in, in, in 2018, when you were, we were looking at it from 2017, everybody was hoping that Santa would bring them a data lake. Um, we, we, we can now indulge that. Right, we can, yes, you want a data lake, fantastic. We can, we can do that. We've got all the pieces and parts. Um, it, it stitches, and they stitch very well together. And oh, by the way, every November, we come out to Las Vegas, and we find out about new pieces and parts that we can take advantage of immediately. This has never happened before. And, and it, in some ways, it may not be especially healthy for an organization that struggles with governance and prioritization, because it's, it, it's, it allows us not to have to make choices. Um, because we don't have to make these huge capital outlays anymore. We don't have to make these huge 18-month plans anymore. We can indulge everybody's ask, and, and it's actually very well suited to an organization like Pfizer who prides itself on its science. We're a bunch of experimenters. We like to explore, um, and our shift to the cloud has fed that and made that, made that easy to do. 
and do it in a way that, that you know, is relatively low risk, low cost. And we're really excited about where we think it will, will take us, um, right. specifically from a, a, a patient perspective. Right. And would it be far stretched to say that what innovation and what push you guys did from this program has propelled the use of cloud within the enterprise? How, how much has that impacted Pfizer as a, as a whole? Uh, candidly, I, I'd, I'd say it, we're, the organization is starting to wake up. This is a tremendous story. I mean, if you go back a couple of slides, you see those operational metrics. These are not things that people have come to expect from IT, right? Usually it takes roughly, you know, 18 months and anywhere between half a million and five million dollars. And at some point you may even realize that, you know, the project's gone off the rails, right? It happens to, it happens to small companies, it happens to big companies, it certainly happens to government. Um, but in this case, we were able to do something completely revolutionary within 12 months, I mean, actually within six months, um, and we're, we're bending these, these curves that we simply, you know, couldn't have imagined before. I don't think people understand the magnitude of what we've done. And, and candidly, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're waiting for red, you know, our redshift environment is probably one of the bigger ones around. We're waiting for the wheels to come off the cart, and it hasn't. Um, so we still talk very quietly about it. <laughs> but um, we're, we're really excited, and we think this is indicative of what we can expect and hopefully what you can expect as well. Thank you. Any questions from the audience? Yes. Yeah, uh, that's a great that's a great question. You might want to repeat it. Uh, yeah. So the the question was, what was the what was the change management? What was the transition from an engineering perspective? Did I get did I get that right? Um, well, so uh, interesting in in many ways. So um, we have found that in certain areas we can get by with far less. So the denormalization of data that was was coming at us just so that we can execute queries effectively. Uh, we don't have to do that anymore. So that's a huge chunk of work that's out. The constant tuning, we, we don't do that anymore, right? The, so we're able to do much more with, with less. The, job, the roles have changed, and, and candidly, it's fed the end. The engineers are now, I believe, invigorated right. to some extent because they get to take advantage of all these new technologies, and it feeds the engineer's mindset. So um, there's all sorts of opportunities where we may have been shackled to technology choices that we made five years ago. Um, now, you know, something new, we're, we're, uh, I, I get in trouble all the time, I, I describe us as promiscuous from a, a technology perspective, right? We used to make these long-term relationships with, with companies and technologies, and we'd commit to them, and five years later, maybe we'd revisit them, and then we'd probably decide, eh, you know, it's too difficult to replatform, and um, and so we we now can we're much more nimble, and our engineers are excited. It is a different set of skills, um, and we are finding that we've got to go out and recruit from from different places. Um, what we're hopeful is is you know that if you've been working uh, for a, a, a digital company for a while and you want to come solve real big challenges, right? I mean, the, the, the one we always point to is, is there's a, a certain cardiovascular condition, about five million, research indicates about five million people in the US have it, about one million go undiagnosed every year. Of that one million, research suggests that you're at three to four times more likelihood of a stroke. Wouldn't it be cool if you could build a system that would help accelerate the diagnosis of the asymptomatic patient? We hope that, that that fires up our engineering crew um, and, and helps us attract more, uh, more traditional software engineers when, candidly, we had gotten away from that. We had been using COTS off-the-shelf software, shackled the old technology. It kind of worked and we, we went with it, but it's, it's not nearly as exciting, I think, as, as where we are today. And just to add on to that, what Abe was saying, so even the DevOps mentality, reuse, best practices, there's more conscientious decisions being made in terms of what to bring in, what to use, what to fail fast and move on. I think that I could see from the outside in, a culture shift has happened also within your group as you went through this journey too. Yeah, there's simply no way we could have done it without transitioning to more of a platform approach. So we, we had historically taken a very bespoke kind of approach to projects. Um, now, 
you know, we have people publishing services that are being used for things that they had no idea existed within our organization. And people on the other side are thrilled because they don't have to develop it. They can just take advantage of what's already there. Um, and so I, I think it's been a net, it's, it's been exciting. Um, it's been a little unsettling to some folks who were wed to some of these legacy technologies, but we don't, it's 12 months later, we don't run into that much anymore. Yes, please. Yeah, I have the secret weapon. His name is Abe. <laughs> Abe. No, so we work closely with, with Amazon up front. So as soon as we made the decision to move to Redshift, uh, we had them come on site uh, to our headquarters and basically hold sessions, walking through the difference between where we were today, a current architecture, what we're moving to, uh, how you execute queries then, how we execute queries now, examples, and so on. Um, our operational team, you know, Deloitte folks, they were hardcore. I mean, they were, they were great. The examples we would use, one thing we've learned is you never use abstract examples. You have to use code that they're generating that, that's taken them a day to execute and say, what if we could execute the same thing in two minutes and show them how it's done? If you teach them how to make their lives faster using their own code, they're more than happy to sit there for two hours and listen. If you're teaching them select star from blah, 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 they're, 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 they're not there anymore. So we did invest uh, both from Amazon and uh, uh, from uh, Pfizer's own team, uh, and as uh, Vitaly mentioned, we have a community of practices where we go over code, we go over snippets and show them how to do things uh, differently. That said, it's still not easy. I mean, we've had uh, some of the simplest SQL statements have brought down our cluster. We have interns. And uh, a simple select star from extremely big table and write five of those in parallel because the first one is still churning, can bring down your cluster. And that's a learning we had to go through. And that's a training exercise we have to go through and show them, hey, you just can't do that. Uh, know what you want before you query it. Uh, and so part of the onboarding is that they have to go through a whole how can you use the data aspect. But we're also building how you can actually use it from a technology perspective as well. If you've never used Redshift, if you've never used these ecosystem, Here's what you do, and here's how you do it, here's what you don't do. And uh, they have to go through that training before they even get an account on the platform. So we're incorporating some of, some of those kind of things as well. Cool. Yes, please. That's a good question. So from a, a Redshift perspective, right, we have built our own custom dashboards that help us do that. We also have DBAs that have uh, you know, triggers and so on, so we know if there's an excessive number of weights or queues uh, in the system. Our platform is 24-7, it's a global platform. Uh, however, concurrency isn't that big of, big of a deal. Um, so we do have active uh, monitors in place. We're not fully there yet, it's something we're still working through and learning as we go. Uh, for the other platforms, uh, whether it's the, the, the Python EC2 instances or deep learning or, or whatnot, uh, I think that's still a work in progress. That's, we have a platform team who's dedicated uh, to looking at that and monitoring it. Um, I don't know if they have anything fully built out. I mean, it's, it's a journey we just started. Yeah, I, I would say we've got the basics of the, the baseline instrumentation that every app should have. Um, it's propagating that through all of our apps that is, is the challenge and, and improving on that. So I, I'd love to know, I'd love to know how you take, it, take that on. And I'm, you know, part of the reason we come here in, in such numbers is to, to pick up from others. Uh, because there's nothing, there's nothing magical about our apps and monitoring that, um, that, uh, that, you know, that, that, I, that you know, we couldn't learn from, from others. And we're a, little bit, we're a little bit farther behind than some of you who may be in financial services or retail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to answer that? Yeah, I mean, 
because our, our team deals with all of the data licensing, so I guess that's mm -hmm. why you want me to answer that. But uh, I think we've been talking, so we've been talking to our data vendors for the longest time, uh, even before we started this transition, we talked to them about better ways of doing it. And cloud always came up. And at the end of the day, we also convinced them that it's better for them because it took effort on their side as well, not, on, not only on our side, uh, you know, to monitor the, uh, the SFTP, creating accounts, creating accounts for us, for them. Some of them were shipping hard drives. Some of them still, sh I think one vendor still ships hard drives, so we had to ship it back. So I, I think it's just showing them that there's something in it for them as well. It's not only for us. Um, and also, I think, um, at least our data vendors, they're, they're moving to the cloud as well, so that might have helped. So over the past 12 months, they've been moving there as well. So that helped um, also, I would say. Cool. Somebody had a question. So, so we have uh, we have a number of scripts that we run after uh, data is loaded so before it's made visible to everybody to make sure that um, uh, that everything is correct. And we also receive uh, we designed uh, I don't know if everybody does it, but at least we have a we uh, designed a certain um, set of protocols with our data vendors so that we can also compare you know what they send what they think they sent us versus what we think we loaded just to make sure that it's the same thing. And, and also, all, uh, I guess we're a little bit lacking in the sense that all of the uh, uh, data scientists and statisticians that use the, uh, the data, they're very knowledgeable about the data. So they know exactly what to expect to see and uh, how many patients of certain types they're expected to see and so forth. So if they see something that doesn't make sense, we would hear about it very, very, uh, very quickly. So I guess, you know, yeah. two parts. Yeah. We, first, we have some protocols with data vendors. We monitor the data loads before we make data available. We make sure that everything is right. And then we also have kind of the human element where all of our data scientists and stats, statisticians, they, uh, they're very knowledgeable. Yeah, I, I would add a couple of things. One, we take a risk-based approach. So we've got very rigorous standards um, based on how we want to use the output. So, and, and Vitaly could, could, could tell you all sorts of stories about the, the uh, scrutiny that we put some of our analyses to because what we expect at the end is that there, you know, in many cases, it's scientific evidence. And that scientific evidence has to hold up. And it's a, it's a very high standard. And coming outside the industry, into the industry, it was something that took me a little while to appreciate. But we've got now some governance around how um, the analytics are performed and done in certain circumstances where the controls are warranted. Um, I'd say we also have a fairly broad and growing data literacy campaign um, or advocacy. So um, we are a, a data company in many respects, um, but we're a company of 100,000. And so for me, it's, it's like what I tell my kids, hey, you could always do better, right? Um, whether, it's whether it's eighth grade math or a visualization you're producing around product performance, we could always do better. Um, and so we try, to, we try to make sure that we, we advocate for the basics around data literacy and visual effective visualization and, and that kind of thing and, and analytic process. Um, so I, and then we have tools, right? So we've got uh, workbenches, you know, data IQ and, um, and the like where we're creating reusable components that data scientists themselves can reuse where you, you know, we've got GitHub so you can reuse code that has been, you know, scrutinized and then sort of certified. Um, so we try to attack it from, from multiple angles. And then, of course, on the intake, we make sure that whatever Abe makes sure, whatever we take in actually lives up to what the vendor says it is going to be. You'd be surprised. Actually, you probably wouldn't be surprised if you have had some of our experience. What we purchase, and these are very, very big, large data purchases, in some ways, some of the times these companies have no idea what they've just sent us. And, and we can prove it. Um, so then they have to go back and, and, and repair it. And we've actually started to think about building that kind of dynamic into how they're compensated um, so that we're not just blindly buying things and hoping that it is what they say it is. And just to add on that, also you're going through the next evolution of knowledge sharing, right? So if a similar question has been asked and analysis has been done, you don't have to redo it. They're doing a much better job of creating those communities, doing knowledge sharing across the board in terms of what can be used so they don't have to answer the question again 
multiple times as such, too. So that's the next evolution of knowledge management that they're doing. Question? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and, and I'd love to talk to you about it. We have seven seconds left. I see Tracy, our producer over there, starting to, to, <laughs> to twitch. Um, if you don't mind, I, I'd be happy to, to talk more about it off to the side for anybody who's got an interest in it, because it, it, uh, it, it was a change, for sure. Ten seconds over. See, I told you, Tracy, we, we'd live up to your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.